This is episode 18, part 2, Designing the Future. There is no manual to go along with all of this technology, which is what Buckminster Fuller was speaking to in his book, The Operating Manual for Spaceship Earth. It seems like we are in this spaceship hurtling through time and space as we're spinning around on a daily clock, essentially, that also spins us around a solar system, which is spinning us around a galaxy. I mean, there's so many nested systems there that we can think of that actually you can't think of any of that as separate from the whole of experience because none of it would exist except for the complexity of everything that there is. Stephen Bao is a user experience designer and social architect that founded the Builders Collective to inspire others to design a more resilient society. In this episode, Stephen and Steve talk about the holobiont, metaphysical gravity, ideas from the Buckminster Fuller Institute, and the ethics surrounding design. If you missed part one, check it out in our feed. Thanks for listening and enjoy the episode. This is... The Language of Creativity podcast. It's one of the things that I've been asked to be involved in is creating a taxonomy for the cooperating manual for Spaceship Earth. So it's the next iteration, not just the operating manual, but the cooperating manual, where we learn to actually work together to understand our place in the universe and understand our deeply interconnected and interdependent relationship with all of it. Wow. Yeah, that's some deep work. And I like the interdisciplinary approach that you're taking with it in terms of staying open-minded to the idea of not knowing what we don't know and that maybe other disciplines of thought have touched upon truth points for exploration or things to think about that we can apply to our more scientific mythological thinking uh, in a way that becomes practical. Because I think that's the hard part is it's like you could talk about this all day long and it could seem so far out and not usable (laughs) in (laughs) terms of any practicality. And it's one of the things that I've enjoyed about the BFI Buckminster Fuller Institute's work is that they're talking about rapid prototyping and iterative design. So it's like, Mm -hmm. how do we get this into a realm where we can actually work with it, see what happens and quickly make make progress on something that is otherwise, I mean, we could sit here for 30, 40, 60, 100, 200, 500 years and try and figure this thing out and maybe not do anything. (laughs) Right. So what we're trying to do then is actually frame the project that we're working on together. It might be a lot of individual projects that have come together as part of what we're calling the design science studio. So There were people who might have taken some courses with the Buckminster Fuller Institute or just have known tangentially or relationally about what was going on there. But they were invited to apply to participate in this group of 144 people who are then divided into 12 pods of 12 people each so that we can try to figure out how do we collaborate effectively together to try to solve a lot of problems very quickly and There was something that Buckminster Fuller was doing around the end of the 60s, the early 70s, where he was exploring the idea of a world game instead of war games, where you were trying to figure out how Mm. to most efficiently kill each other. You're 
involved in a world game where you're trying to figure out how do we make the world work for 100% of life, as many human beings as possible, and not just human beings, all the living systems of the planet. So then what if we gave ourselves 10 years to accomplish this? How would we organize this game so that we could actually arrive at some workable solutions within those 10 years? And so what we've planned out is something called the design science decade, where here's what I'm thinking is, you know, the distinction between design and science for me is that science is an understanding of your environment, but the understanding of the environment kind of puts you into a mode of a feeling of helplessness. Like this is just so immense. I can never understand all of it all at once. And we need each other to try to understand it. So we have to divide into specialties to do that. But on the design side of things, this is where we have to come together to figure out how do we take everything that we do already know, what have we learned through experimentation and failure and diving into uncertainty and doubt to try to solve problems that we have no idea what the solutions are, but we figured out a process that kind of draws from the scientific method where you have a hypothesis and then you have an experiment and then you analyze the test results. Well, we're doing the same thing in UX design where we are applying that same methodology to creativity so that we can then create an idea, a hypothesis of, well, here's a design problem that we need to solve. So maybe we can test out this particular solution, but without knowing what that solution is, we can only just frame the problem and then start ideating over what those possibilities could be and then choose one that might you know, have the best possibility of being the thing and turn that into a prototype that we can test in real life. And that becomes a methodology that if you keep on iterating over that over time, you can incrementally start getting to a a place where you can create some improvements on the product that you have or can take a look at a particular problem and think through in terms of service design thinking, well, what kinds of ways can we look at walking through those problems and considering the user journey? What kind of things have to take place on the front line of that service or what happens on the back end in terms of how the organization works so that all mm-hmm. those things come into place in the right place at the right time so that a human being encounters that product and then discovers wow, this solves every problem that I was trying to look for a solution for. And so now I don't have to figure that out myself. I can just outsource it to this product. Right, which is actually why we're in such a time of amazing possibility, because never before have we had access to so many tools as a human that, as Elon Musk said, almost make us superhuman. And so it occurs to me that as you're talking about this iterative process that Design has learned a lot from software engineering because it used to be that you would design for an end and then that thing would be done and finished. And now you're designing for an iteration and you're able to constantly evolve and like improve upon what you're making or what you're designing. Yeah, exactly. So what we discovered through something called agile methodology and other practices like that is that even like the the Toyota car factory was if at any point along the production chain, someone can speak up and say, well, there seems to be a problem here. Can we all gather around and try to sort out where the problem is? 
how can we maybe adjust the, the process so that we can solve that particular issue and then you turn on the system and then it's running a lot smoother. When it gets into software development, then you're doing that on an hourly, daily, weekly basis where you're going through cycles of iteration as quickly as possible so that you can hit certain deadlines and certain levels of effort that need to go into improving that system based on you've set yourself a kind of roadmap of all the features that you want to either add or improve over time. And so you're creating a workflow that serves the ability to understand where things go wrong in a system and how to quickly adapt on the fly based on the collective intelligence of the group. So yeah. we're effectively, yeah, we're, we're trying to take that kind of idea and then go, well, rather than set in stone, for example, a constitution for how a nation state is going to work for the next 500 years, what if that document could change over time and adapt to the environment and the changing social conditions that... And the leaps in knowledge. Right, right. So to think that we can come up with one system that is going to work for all time just seems like a ludicrous idea (laughs) when (laughs) we compare it to how even human civilizations have matured over time. And uh, Rob Bell was just talking about spiral dynamics with his son and explaining how we came from a very scarcity-driven, survivalistic kind of mode of being in a very scary, dangerous world. And now we've come to a place where we're starting to explore different ways of having a relationship with our environment where we're having a more integrative and holistic way of viewing how we relate to everything. Well, certainly. Yeah. I mean, it was like the idea that a tiger is going to chase you down and the food is scarce and everything's cold and you need to make a fire and eventually you need a tribe. And so then the tribe has dynamics. And so you need some way to manage tribe dynamics and things kind of go a certain way until you end up having somebody who's got a really dominant personality and who's like, I am the leader of this tribe and you get that. And then everybody says, we got to put these leaders in check. So then you go into, okay, well, we got to have some laws here, you know, like Code of Hammurabi, right? You know, some guidelines here on how we do this whole power thing. And then that gets really stodgy and kind of dogmatic. And then you get science and science is like, well, hey, let's look at everything through analytic reason. And let's look at this as even a really good idea. Let's test it. Let's see if it's a good idea or bad idea. And that evolves and evolves and evolves and evolves. And society is in this constant process of evolution in terms of also based on conditions. And and simultaneously, we're all in all those places at once. The moment you take away someone's house and you put them on the street, they're going to be on a very base level of existence. I'm cold, I'm hungry, I need shelter, and all those all those high-minded ideals are going to sort of go away. <laughs> you might try and steal bread from someone because you're hungry at that point. You know, it doesn't matter how high-minded you are, how idealistic you are. And so, yeah, I think that's a fascinating study. One of the things I wanted to say to segue back into our conversation about the internet is that what happens when that high-minded idealism or that utopian ideology goes awry. 
And how does that happen from a design perspective? I know you shared a book with me by Mike Montiero <laughs> called right. Ruined by Design. Yes. Yeah. And Mike Montiero's name stuck out to me because he is actually featured in the movie, The Social Dilemma. Hmm. So these ideas that you shared with me, now it's like everyone's talking about The Social Dilemma. If you haven't seen it, you probably should. But I wanted to kind of talk with you about design ethics and responsibility because, I mean, like you said, there's all these different motivations that we choose when we're making something. And so, like, it's good to have utopian ideals, but then it's also sort of the law of intended consequences many times. Um, so um, can we segue into that and, and continue there? Yes. So what kind of ethical framework do we start off with? I wouldn't necessarily call myself an ethicist, but the interesting thing that comes out of maybe conversations with uh, a guy named Yuval Noah Harari and the leaders of Microsoft is the question, do you have any ethicist in your company? Because this is crucial for where we are in our cultural evolution. If you're not thinking of ethics, then you're driving your company into a wall really quickly. <laughs> So, um, yeah, where do we even start with morality and where do we find a foundation for ethics that can inform what we're doing as designers? At the very least, we need to have some awareness of where we've come from as a culture. And I'd be, <laughs> here's where I start getting into an area where I have some strong ideas about politics that maybe are leaning very far towards the socialist utopian kind of perspective because I have an affinity for the Bauhaus and that's, uh, I feel like, what they were trying to do in April of 1919 when Walter Gropius was putting out this manifesto of here's what the world could be. We could have all these artists and architects and sculptors all uniting under one banner to reimagine what the world could look like. What is the architecture of the future? And that was basically the task that they were giving themselves. So what we've done in kind of mainstream consumer culture is that we have just tacitly agreed to the system that exists and have been involved and deeply engaged in this process of making it bigger and more powerful. And well, it has the effect of taking all those projects that might have started 500 years ago as people got into boats and traveled to different lands to see what kind of resources there were in different areas of the world and then seeing how well they could exploit those resources and extract the minerals and the gems and the fine precious metals. And the human resources. Yeah, they could turn that into capital that can further drive the engine and continue it running faster and faster. So... Well, case in point, the monarchy in England sending ships all over the world and colonizing, <laughs> right. you know, as far as uh, Hong Kong, right? And Australia yeah. and, yeah, enlarging their uh, empire and bringing the wealth back to yeah. the British Isles, right? Yeah. So that's where I start to question, well, what is the project that I'm involved in? What am I building? And when I started the Builders Collective, it was just realizing, well, I've, I've run on this name, the Bauhaus, just renaming it 
B-A-U-H-O-U-S-E, to make it sort of anglicized. Because your last name is Bao. Yeah, because my last name is Bao, and I was working at my home, and it seemed like a nice play on words to position myself as a professional designer with some experience. But then I started to think, well, what if we could refashion the idea of the Bauhaus for a contemporary context? What would that actually look like? And I didn't immediately think of a corporation (laughs) as the solution. I was thinking more of the idea of a school. And then it was also reimagining what education could look like because even the education system itself is designed to create factory workers. It's an industrial mode of education that has a certain expectation that we're going to create specialized workers that can be fit into a production line system of manufacturing or creating products that meet the needs of a consumer society. I'm going to put a link in the show notes to Sir Ken Robinson's talk on that. Yes, that's an excellent resource. So then, what is education then? And maybe we stop using the word education because that's part of the language of the empire that has been exported around the world as the only way that human beings are able to learn is by, in some places, the government will pay for that education, but in others, the risk is wholly on the shoulders of the student to be able to take on all of that debt and then hope for the best when they're getting into the job market. So that's where I can see that there are some issues even with the work that I'm doing as a mentor is it's part of something called the case study factory. There's an article that I point my students to right at the beginning of our work with each other so that they're very clear-eyed as they're going into this, that there is a kind of arms race for the top talent of the world in the UX design space. And the way we prepare people for that industry is to put them through a kind of boot camp that allows them to absorb the methodologies and the tools that we're using to help corporations work way more efficiently and to be able to incrementally improve on the products and services that they're putting out into the world. But if that's the primary motivation of design, then is there something being left out? And that's where ethically and morally, I think we have to enlarge our lens of what it is we're trying to accomplish to not just building the tools and infrastructure of a capitalist neoliberalism, but maybe we actually have to rethink that entire economic system that has been built out of slavery and land theft and the exploitation of colonies through imperial domination. So if that's what corporations are, they're just an extension of the doctrine of discovery and the free exploitation of any land that you discover. When we start applying that to human beings and we become the site of exploitation, then it becomes really uncomfortable. (laughs) Mm, The the social dilemma is trying to create a more Disney-fied kind of view of Let's take a look at a kind of inside-out view of Facebook and Twitter and our social media environment. 
Let's make a Cliff's Notes version of The Social Dilemma for people so that the audience can follow along if they haven't seen it. Because we were talking at the beginning about the evolution of the internet and how that was changing things. And so I think it would be good to provide some practical context on what we're talking about when we realize that Facebook starts, you know, everybody gets on it and pretty soon it's ubiquitous. It's like having a telephone. Oh, I'm going to just message someone on Facebook instead of calling them. And pretty soon the company, as it's growing, is systematically looking at all the networks of you, your friends, your friends of friends, who you might know. They're creating algorithms to suggest you should know this person and that person. And then in the background, in the back end, as you were calling it, their goal was to develop a profit model so that they could be profitable. Because remember, Facebook didn't make any money for the first, what, eight to 10 years of its existence, even though it became the most trafficked site almost in the world, second to Google. And basically what happened was they had to find a way to make it profitable. So at some point, I remember around 2011, 2012, 13, something like that, I started noticing that the newsfeed was changing. The way that the newsfeed operated, suddenly there were algorithms that were manipulating what you saw, who you saw and when, and how many people would see your post. And then if it was a certain kind of post, a lot of people like it because they'd all see it. And it created sort of this feedback loop of an ecosystem of engagement. And so the social dilemma basically highlights the fact that attention, human attention, has become a commodity that can be monetized. And these computer algorithms are optimizing content based around the idea of engagement because engagement and activities keep you on the platform and they boost the ability for the platform to serve you targeted advertising that follows you around and knows what you like, knows your preferences and tries to suggest to you things based on what it knows about you in this large aggregation of enormous amounts of data points. And remember, these algorithms are iterative, so they can teach themselves, they can learn certain things. Uh, But as one of the data scientists says, you know, algorithms are not objective, they're opinion engines, they basically create opinions and maximize for opinions. So in Ruin by Design, they start to talk about the arms race of UX designers who get cherry-picked for these roles, almost like, you know, Oppenheimer and the Manhattan Project, right? You get these really talented people and you say, we need to make this thing and it needs to do X or Y and Z. And um, that even in the movie, even some of the people that they're interviewing, like say, no, I don't let my kids use Facebook. I don't let them have a smartphone. Like I would never (laughs) in a million years let my children use our products. And so that was the social dilemma. It's like, wait a second, all of a sudden people who designed this thing realizing what have we done and what has this become? So I want to hear from you more about how did we get there and what is that? So probably one of the reasons I wanted to get into design over business administration or marketing or public relations There's something that's driving what we're doing as designers that is leaning more towards how can we better society in some significant way. But even when we try with our privilege, there is a bias that we bring to everything. And we also can't remove ourselves from the systems that we're a part of. So we might want to use our artistry for something that is more about maybe 
educating the population to be better citizens, um, to be able to make better decisions, to be able to understand their world better, and to be able to be ethical stewards of the resources that we have. But at the other side of that is an economic engine that is very much at odds with, you could say, humanity. <laughs> it is trying to amass capital and the industry of amassing capital tends to be usually at the expense of somebody. And it might not be within our own borders of our own country because right. these days we've become really good at outsourcing those things that we don't want to do. And right. we are actually moving those things that are not the kinds of activities that we would enjoy to people who are living off of subsistence wages, just happy to have a job to put food on their table. And, right, like trash. I mean, right. we literally ship trash on barges to go to mm -hmm. China so that they can take e-waste and they pick it apart like in campfires and like just litter the landscape. It's mind-boggling. Yeah, yeah. So just thinking of Hunger Games as a thought experiment in... What if there was a place that exploited the surrounding environments so that the people at the center of that social system could benefit? And then you go to that film thinking you're going to be entertained or at least, you know, horrified by what a ridiculous kind of society who would ever do that without right. recognizing that it's actually a metaphor for the American empire, then oh, well, then it sinks in that what we're actually doing is starving the world for our own benefit. Mm. It hits home that there needs to be a, a moral framework for the kinds of things that we do in the world that is not about exploiting each other and also at the expense of everybody. <laughs> Even the 1% is going to fail if they're able to succeed uh, mm. with their endeavors at least maybe in the short term, they're going to succeed. But the long term of humanity is not going to be very bright if we keep on going down this road. And I think that's what we're waking up to during a pandemic where it's highlighting all of these systemic problems that are arising at the same time, all the way from the biological to the personal, to the social, to the economic, to the political to the ecological, all of those things are in crisis in the same way that they were in crisis at the time of the emergence of the Bauhaus. So what we're finding now is that even in Europe, they're imagining that, well, we'll take many of these billions of dollars that we're putting towards creating a circular economy to creating a new Bauhaus. And so I think that is what we're embarking on in the North American context as the design science studio, we are trying to prototype what that community looks like. How do we actually bring everyone together to take all the gifts and knowledge and experience that we've gained through serving these economic interests that have been actually not in our interest? How do we start transitioning to a different way of living and being in the world that actually reconnects us to our environment and to each other? so mm -hmm. that we're addressing the very real concerns of the degradation of mental health, uh, right. especially during this time.
Well, I think like you mentioned, there's a hidden gift in the isolation of COVID. And it's exactly like the overview effect when you fly outside the planet. Suddenly you turn that camera from the outside and you're forced to turn it inward. And I think you mentioned it when you were talking about cities and suburbanization. Suddenly people realize like, wait, I don't want to spend two and a half hours a day in traffic. And suddenly we stopped. And suddenly like telecommuting made sense and we just did it. And it was like, suddenly people I knew were just going, wow, there's nothing else to do. I might as well pick up my guitar. And we were rediscovering certain things about life that maybe when we were too busy running around trying to make an extra eight and a half thousand dollars a year annually by taking a job just a little bit further away in traffic to get a slightly bigger house, you know, maybe those things don't matter all the time, as much as we conceive that they do. And perhaps there are multiple filters with which to prioritize and make decisions, one of them being well-being, happiness, and who are the people in your neighborhood? <laughs> do, you, do you like who you're living with? Do you have things each day that are little things that make you smile? And it matters how you treat the people around you, because those are the people who are going to ultimately support you when something like this goes down. I think that was pretty much the most powerful question I wanted to ask when all this started is like, okay, so now what? Like we have this huge opportunity to take a look inside and reframe everything and we can continue to do things exactly like we've been doing them. And everyone says, let's open, get back to normal. But it's like, wait a second, like normal wasn't that good. <laughs> I think somehow we'd missed the mark on a lot of things that really matter. And it's not like everything we have is bad. It's not like everything about the way the, the society, it's not all bad or all good, but there were so many things that we were cutting off our nose to spite our face. And it's like just to run back to this sort of like automaton lifestyle that we're living. This is stuck in like another century. There's so many things in our world that could have moved ahead that haven't yet. And we're looking at 2020 just going, okay. But like my question to you, Stephen, is how do we design the future? And that is the question. We've gone through an iteration that we call modernism because the Bauhaus created a kind of initial design iteration and evangelizing those ideas and actually imagining what a pedagogy, a kind of education structure might look like for that kind of work of reformulating everything. And we can kind of look back to that as a model for how they were able to spread some really amazing ideas that we can owe so many things in our world to the innovation that they created. But we also know that they were unsuccessful in a lot of different ways as well. They were not able to figure out how to overcome the patriarchal kind of bias within their educational environment they were not wildly inclusive in the ways that we think of from our perspective. But they were, for the time, very, very inclusive. But there were limitations. They had blind spots and things did go wrong. And when their ideas are also, um, they don't have time to properly formulate or move in a particular direction, then 
it is easy for violent power to take over. Right. Like you mentioned that they existed right after World War One and right before World War Two. So the Third Reich sort of right. took over their brightest and greatest and used them for their war machine. <laughs> right. So by 1933, there had been multiple iterations of the school because the political climate of that school was so perceived to be liberal and destructive by a very conservative political environment that they kept on being shut down to, okay, well, maybe we'll try over here in Dessau instead of Weimar. And then that got shut down by the Nazis. So they tried to reopen in Berlin and that didn't last very long before that rented building was was also closed down. And then they realized this is not going to work. So they had to move somewhere else. And that started the Bauhaus diaspora. A lot of those masters of architecture and art ended up moving to the United States. And so there was Yale and Harvard and the new Bauhaus in Chicago and Black Mountain College in North Carolina. So there were all these different iterations of that design school that did influence a lot of design and architecture that became a kind of international style. But it was also tainted by a kind of corporate capitalism that diluted the ideas of holistic thinking that came out of that social utopian democratic experiment in the Weimar Republic. So what we're looking at now is, well, yeah, how do we design for resilience? We need to know that things can go wrong. There are economic situations, there are violent powers that would try to thwart those projects. And so it means that we need to be very aware of the possible threats, but also to realize that we have influence and agency and uh, capacity as designers that if we are working together, we have the ability to overcome those threats just by being aware and being cognizant of where our morals and ethics can be derailed, especially when we're not even thinking or training people for the process of taking ideas that are coming from economic and corporate hierarchies. And if we don't have the opportunity to filter that through a kind of ethical framework, we just are in the process of following orders Mm -hmm. Um, because we're just so busy we can't think of doing anything else, then that becomes a problem. So, Well, as Mike Montiero said in Ruined by Design, designers aren't trained in ethics. So when you go into a company that's writing your paycheck and they say, make something that forces a user to click this button, you're going to go where your paycheck is for the most part, you know, okay, well, all right, let's solve this problem. And you're not thinking about the fact that teenagers are committing suicide over Facebook likes and Instagram likes. You're not thinking about those, like, it's just not in your mindset. You're like, well, I'm getting paid, there's money. It's easy to, like, you know, wow, I'm making bank right now. I'm at this big company and I've got a foosball table and free coffee and all this stuff. And it's just, you're just, and I'm working and I'm happy and I'm excited and, you know, here we go. Right, yeah, so... The thing that's the problem there is that we don't actually get to the core values that are driving this whole engine. And it's this fear and scarcity over an economic situation that is actually designed 
for us to feel that way. Exactly. Now, when we talk about systemic racism, we also have to talk about what is that system? How do we, you know, in this sort of Christian deconstructionist kind of mode that a lot of people are in is how do we then actually go even wider to not just the faith, but also the economics, the political system, and just the way we think of ourselves in the ecological environment. There's That's where we get to the idea of the holobiont and all those nested systems is that you cannot solve these problems with incremental changes. You actually have to think at the systemic level and who's going to give permission for that to happen? The powers that be are not going to do that. <laughs> so mm-hmm. there has to be some sort of agency that comes from the grassroots where we start taking up the mantle of that responsibility of taking on our own education as moral agents in the universe who have a responsibility to, well, we're all designers. And it's not just this elite group that has been given the paycheck to become designers. According to Mike Montero, everyone's a designer who's involved in the process of building that product, whether it's the people who are figuring out where the money goes in the organization to um, the people who are delivering the mail or whatever. Everybody's involved in maintaining that system so that it works as efficiently as it does. But if we wake up to the idea that maybe that's not the kind of system that we need to build, then that raises a whole lot of questions about, well, what do we need? What do we build? And Mm -hmm. that's basically the whole idea of the Builders Collective is that for now, it's just me and a friend. (laughs) But the idea is that, well, no, actually it is more than just me and a friend that know about this idea. It's actually, we are recognizing that there's people waking up and rising up against the idea that this is the only way we can live life. And There are people who are not as privileged as we are that are depending on us to wake up and recognize our responsibility because their island states are going to be going underwater because the fossil fuels are creating the conditions for the collapse of entire ice shelves in the Arctic. Mm -hmm. All these different feedback loops that are being triggered by so many environmental conditions that can be pointed back to human activity. So when we recognize all of us have agency in this, it actually is to the benefit of all of us not to pick one side or the other because there are no sides. There is only one. (laughs) Right. Which is kind of the main message of that idea of the holobiont or Gaian systems is that everything is interconnected and we're all interdependent. And if we don't see things that way, then we are probably going to be working against our own interests. Eventually, so true. And to probably the demise of the species. The Earth itself probably will survive without us, but we will not survive without the Earth. Right. Well, and I think that's so important to frame this on the idea of where do we want to go? What are we trying to design? And to bring that intentionality to the question, because otherwise, 
It's, I mean, I think our world was in a state of accepting uh, so many status quos, and it was so hard to change things that, in, in essence, we were all benefiting from, um, like having cars. I mean, it's almost like, and this is where I geek out about design a little bit, because you go, okay, well, the reason I drive a car is because it's necessary for me to own one. Now, I personally like driving cars, so I'm not saying people shouldn't drive cars or shit, but I'm saying that, like, in terms of influencing human behavior in large scale, the fact that I can't walk to the grocery store means that I'm better off if I own a car. And so when you look at design and its responsibility in society, it's huge. And like you said, we're all designers. I mean, there's this idea of design within your own life of like my choices influence what my life is like. You know, where do I live? It influences what school my kids will go to. What do I choose to do as work? You know, uh, do I choose something that I like or dislike? And it's almost not even a choice sometimes for people because those choices get influenced by, well, how bad do I have to eat? And what do I have available to me? And what are my resources? And so you had mentioned is all these systems like interact with each other. And so I think it takes a certain degree of consciousness on a personal level to choose the things that we do have agency over and be deliberate about those choices and those choices branch out and they influence not just ourselves, but others. If I'm happier in my job, I'm a better father. I'm nicer to my kids, <laughs> you know, and if I'm under a large amount of stress that that affects the people around me, it has a ripple effect. And so that question of what is it that we want to make? How do we want to live? You know, what kind of humans do we want to be? What kind of legacy do we want to leave to our grandchildren? What kind of legacy do we want to leave to the planet? Um, I think this is the question of our age. And so I like that, um, that you and others are thinking so deeply about these systems and these things and these ideas and these practicalities of how, how can we live together as a world. And like you said, it's all one. We don't have the luxury of dividing anymore into these separate groups because we're at the point, I mean, we were since the 80s, that war will destroy the world if we let it get out of control. So looking at these different information ecosystems and how people are treating each other online, it's like it's so easy to forget that when you're hiding behind a name tag and you're just on a keyboard, that those that person you're talking to they're in is a human being who, if they were sitting in the same room with you, you might choose your words more carefully. But there's something about the practicality of using that technology that removes you from that. And so my question is, how can we design systems that humanize the experience of these things so that we can actually bring out the better angels of our nature? Because in a sense, when we design things, I think, like you said, with using tools, humans, we create things in our own image. So uh, if I'm, you know, an angry driver, my car becomes a weapon. <laughs> you know? Like if I'm a very peaceful person, then I can find a way to plant flowers with a sword. But the sword is still a sword. That's the thing. It's like what we're making is humans are making swords uh, for quite a while because humans are very warlike. And hopefully, as you said, as these conditions continue to evolve and change, are we going to find ourselves in a better and better scenario or are we going to find ourselves in a dystopia? And I think that's one of the biggest questions of our time is like people are afraid that any kind of systemic change like you're talking about, like let's assess the underlying fundamental conditions by which we're 
running our society, I think people become afraid of like a dystopian, like, well, what if the new boss is the same as the old boss, only worse, because now there's more control. You know what I'm saying? Like people worry about a utopian scenario because they're afraid of it going awry, just like everything else always has. So that's one of the things that I think we can't allow ourselves to get into that false dichotomy of like, well, we shouldn't try because it's just going to fail. I think we need to design for resilience. Like you have said, we need to realize that people are people and people fight and people get in disagreements and people have different opinions and there have biases and limitations. Even the Gandhis among us have flaws and existed in history that they did because they had the right conditions to be a change agent for good. But, you know, some people, even some of the most saintly deified people have flaws that you'd look back and go, whoa, like Jefferson had slaves, but he was like really progressive and had some really great humanitarian ideals, but like, whoa, dude, (laughs) right? Right. So I think this is the question of, you know, when people fight the idea of, you know, what if this is some new world order? It's more of a question of which system of control are they most afraid of? And I think the real answer is a world which is free as possible from coercion and control. And hopefully (laughs) we can use our agency for good. Exactly. So here's where I'm wondering how do we take what we're learning from design because it's uh it actually gives us a good framework and some tools to be able to reimagine what the future could look like design according to marty newmeyer is this gap between our vision and our reality so the process to get there is not just to you know throw up our hands and well this is the reality that we've been given. So I guess there's nothing to do but just uh, live with it. Mm-hmm. Design is that hopefulness and actually experience in recognizing, wow, we do have the ability to make some amazing changes in the world, but they also do depend on the value systems that we start with. So back in December, I was trying to figure out how do we create the kind of communities that can build healthy communities. So I thought as I was exploring the different methodologies and ways of researching and exploring solutions that we have with UX design, I recognized that, well, we have things called personas and empathy maps and a lot of different tools that help us to get into the shoes of another person. But the persona as a tool seems like it's actually very much derived from the kind of perspective that would arrive at treating people as consumers and target markets and people to be able to manipulate according to your own business model rather than actually understanding what it means to be human. So I wanted to actually just even iterate on our design tools and think, well, what if we could iterate on the idea of a persona? What would that look like? So 
I started delving into what does it mean to understand your materials when you're a UX designer? If you're designing human experience, well, what does that look like? Right. We don't actually design it. We don't fashion it into whatever we want. But in some ways, we have been given, according to Tristan Harris, the tools to be able to tap into the brainstem and be able to trigger certain chemicals in the brain that create centers of pleasure that also manipulate habits. And so when we're doing that, well, I guess we do. He kind of likens it to having a joystick on human behavior. So when we recognize we have that behavior, well, what do we do? So I created these mental models for understanding human experience. And it was a way of being able to drive right down to the core of our human experience in our understanding of our environment in the universe, in time and space, but then recognizing we have consciousness and then different motivations that are driven by different parts of our brain. So we have a limbic system and a prefrontal cortex that are kind of in competition with each other over what gets attention. So sometimes Mm -hmm. fear And scarcity can be driving our intentions. And then other times we might be just in a state of flow and we're just enjoying the experience of being creative and appreciating the love that comes from being able to meet the needs of other human beings in a way that's really kind of ingenious or Mm -hmm. taking what we know and turning that adjacent possible into actual Know, solutions that wouldn't be possible unless we actually used our influence capacity and agency in a way that could affect the outcome. But that really does start with being really clear on your intentions and your values yeah. and uh, your purpose for doing things. So when we're embedded in systems that kind of define those things for us, we get into a kind of automaton kind of state where we're just following the orders of the executive functions of that system rather than actually recognizing that we have agency, we have the ability to change reality into the vision that we have in mind within certain limitations. You know, so there are going to be things like we can learn from IDEO. Is it uh, desirable? Is it feasible? Is it viable? So does it meet a human need? Does it actually Hmm. fit into the limitations of our understanding of technology? And is it something that could be viable as a business model if we're in the existing economic environment? But then we can start going outside of that and then seeing us as, well, actually, human beings are not a business model. (laughs) IDEO's human-centered design is predicated on everything revolving around a business model. What if there was a different kind of incentive for human agency and the way we use our time, energy, and resources? So Mm -hmm. that's where I'm exploring that whole idea. TimeEnergyResources.com is all kind of dedicated to what if we run a different kind of design iteration where it's all about how we reimagine our social architecture from Mm. the ground up, where what if the system was not capitalism? What are the alternatives? What if it was not socialism um, in the kind of state authoritarian kind of conceptions of that in China and Russia? Have we 
run out of ideas over the past hundred years. Those are the only <laughs> things that we could come up with. Right. Yeah. Seriously. Just there's two ideas. That's it. We're going right, to spy out right. the rest of time. Right. So it's just a lack of imagination and a lack of permission in some cases where, oh, we thought we didn't have permission to engage in these sorts of thought experiments. Well, the only reason you think that way is because you feel like that agency has been stripped away by the system that forces you into thinking that I got to buy my house, my car and whatever to maintain the same system that I'm in without thinking about what you're actually doing. (laughs) Right. Yeah. What is a circular economy? Good question. So a circular economy is probably way out of my pay grade, but I'm going to point to a book called Donut Economics by Kate Rayworth, where she does a really good explanation about how there are certain social boundaries and there are also certain ecological boundaries that we should not cross. And Mm. what we are doing with the existing economy is trampling all over those boundaries Right, where we are overextending the economic spending of the planet, where right. you know Buckminster Fuller would have said, we have this huge saving account of energy storage that has been absorbed by all these organisms and compressed into these forms of nascent energy that we can tap into. But if we burn it all at once, then that's like billions of years just gone in a generation so all up in smoke yeah (laughs) sorry forgive the pun and at the same time undermining the living support systems of the planet right by upsetting the really fine-tuned biochemical environment that we're in so if we depend on the diversity of the organisms in our environment to maintain and self-regulate the holobiont of the earth then we are actually undermining our own species by driving this economic engine. And all that's going to be left is just a bunch of legal contracts that said that corporations have legal personhood. But mm. <laughs> that's all that's going to be left of humanity. Right. Those burnt pieces of paper that were just figments of our imagination to begin with. And lots and lots of plastic. <laughs> right, right. Okay, so that's what we have now, which is sort of like this top-down pyramid, kind of like, you know, just bottom-line thinking. But um, what would the circular economy entail? Yeah, yeah. So how do we get there? Um, There's What is it? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So Kate Rayworth is basing her donut economics on the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, And so there's 12 different sectors that pertain to the different things that factor into human health and well-being. So if life became the measure of value rather than dead currency, then it would change everything that we value. The limited time that we have on Earth would be something that we would not want to spend carelessly on building systems that are actually decreasing the lifespan of most people on the earth. Mm -hmm. So we've gotten to a state where our own children may have shorter lifespans than we have. And Mm -hmm. that's a terrible place to put your own children and a terrible legacy to leave to the generations to come. So 
maybe engaging in indigenous ways of being where they had learned many ways of being able to engage within their environment with awe and reverence for the beauty of everything that was there and to be very careful about what you take away from it so that you're not Hmm. disrupting how everything works together in that interconnected, interdependent whole. Hmm. So it's a completely different framework of thinking and being in the world, but that means that the way we change society is not by fighting against the existing systems, as Bucky would have said, rather than fight against those systems, you create a new model that makes the old model obsolete. And we've Mm. seen that in many iterations of industrial change, whether it's moving from trains to planes to self-driving automobiles. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But maybe we rethink that whole idea about, it's great that we can travel around the world, but maybe we start thinking about what does it look like to have a local economy or a local community that is actually living in neighborly relationship with not only the humans in your neighborhood, but also the other living more than human neighbors that are all around us that are also part of who we are. Hmm. I keep thinking about if there were simply an incentive that either helped companies or workers decide to live more often where they worked. Think of how many societal problems could be solved with that one initiative. (laughs) Pollution, high blood pressure, hypertension, heart attack, depression. Yeah, just mental health. Just because you, you know your friends and neighbors and have actual time to spend with them. You'd actually get to go for walks because <laughs> yeah. you'd have time. Yeah. You wouldn't be sitting in your car and then you wouldn't need as many, um, what do they call them? Pharmaceuticals, you know, painkillers <laughs> for all your body aches. And maybe you would actually do something very beneficial in your spare time, <laughs> right. like volunteer or make something useful. I don't know. <laughs> Raise your own children. What? <laughs> That's ridiculous. Outsourcing education of your child to the state. (laughs) That's radical and very practical. (laughs) I think it would humanize us in so many ways by recognizing that this was actually a huge joy and a gift that was given to us to be able to have these precious children with us for this limited amount of time and then spend our time pouring our energy into getting to know them and helping them thrive and then pass on your wisdom so that they can do the same for the next generation. I think we're up so fast. You know, what it was about. And so the film, My Octopus Teacher, is that kind of species boundary transcending kind of film that allows you to see that the life of that octopus and I you know spoiler alerts but that octopus poured out its life in trying to navigate its own environment learn everything it could and then pass on that wisdom to the next generation through its genes through well the whole of its being 
into reproducing what would be the next generation. And that's where biomimicry can really help us in understanding, well, why are we here? (laughs) What are we doing if we're taking everything for ourselves and then going, well, too bad for you. I know I, I gave birth or life to my progeny, but I behaved in a way that was detrimental to you know, multiple generations going forward and how are we going to be regarded in history? <laughs> right. If there's any history to tell. Well, it comes down to this idea that to bring the light, you must bear the light. So your own being in this world, the way you inspire others, the way you love others, the way you pour into others, it's what creates the better society. It's what ripples outward into those around us. And ultimately, again, it's that, you know, donut idea of like, you, you start small, you start where you are in the middle and you be the best you you can be, and you pass that on to others, and then those people uplift and pass that on to others, and those people uplift and pass that on to others. And at some point, the people who are meant to connect, um, <laughs> connect and hopefully make something great that is uplifting to the world too. And you can't do that if you don't start with the first looking inward and saying, what is my contribution? How do I be a better human? How do I look at the whole of this world in a way that is a benefit to everything around me, not just the people, but the plants and the sky and the water and the animals and the land and everything that exists. How do you do that? Like, you know, how do I be a better person? And that's the light and the light is contagious. (laughs) Right. Yeah. And, and another phrase that Buck, Mr. Fuller used was he was, exploring the idea of metaphysical gravity. Oh, yeah, I love this. Everything is held together by gravity. Then what holds everything together in the metaphysical? What he was exploring was that there was no divide, really, between even the physical and the metaphysical. What he was exploring in mathematics was pointing to universal principles in the way we think about the principles of living as human beings. So he was considering all of life from the physical to the metaphysical as a universal whole entity. And we can't look at ourselves as apart from it. So in that sense, even if you have a cosmology that, you know, we die and then we go to heaven, well, you might want to live your life in the same way that someone who is an atheist who's living as if, you know, whatever mm-hmm. I do is consequential in this life. I only have a certain amount of time and then yeah. I might disappear after that. But actually what I do is project into the forward, into generations of the future, what I've learned through my life. And so whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian or whatever your conception of the universe, it actually still comes down to love is the thing that holds everything together. Love Mm. is metaphysical gravity. And (laughs) yeah, (laughs) it's the, if you're going to build any sort of 
ethics and morality, it's trying to figure out, well, what does that mean? What is love? And that's that's why I'm right now in the Living Systems Collaboratory exploring how we conceive of an interface for navigating metaphysical gravity. And it's mm-hmm. just really a code for thinking, well, how do we learn how to love each other? Mm-hmm. And it's really interesting to me how that message resonates on both sides of the political divide in yes. ways that if we thought of ourselves as you know, either part of the hierarchy or part of the network, and that we're at odds because we're fighting over as designers who gets agency and saying where this network goes or who has power in the hierarchy. Instead, mm-hmm. we're actually trying to figure out, well, actually those two groups just manifest different ways of thinking and bias in the way humans are oriented. So some just like to build efficient systems. Others like to push innovation. And right. so if we put those two things together, we have a very vital engine for creating a world that works together for 100% of life. And the greatest among these is love, (laughs) to quote the Bible. Exactly. So, you know, everything that I'm doing is relating a social utopian philosophy of the Bauhaus to a Christian conservative metaphysics and trying to show that there is no culture war there. It's actually the whole thing is built around growing and maturing and finally connecting to the executive function of a higher being, whether that's God or whether that's the universe, Mm. the holobiont of the earth um, kind of gaining consciousness. So like both of those kind of metaphysics actually are not (laughs) in contradiction with each other unless you take a very literalist kind of interpretation of the Bible, which actually that has no real validity beyond, you know, the past 100, 150 years Mm -hmm. of history. And and even beyond that, it just doesn't hold water. (laughs) I always like the Budweiser commercial that was like, or it was a Miller Lite, it was like, you know, drag racing, beauty pageant. (laughs) Both. <laughs> I don't know. I always felt that way about things when I was conservative and Christian. It was very much like, you know, is it Calvinism or Arminianism? And it's like, is it determinism or is it free will? And I'm kind of thinking, well, like, actually, do they have to be a dichotomy? Do they have to oppose? Like, maybe it's actually both and we just don't get it somehow. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, that that's how I've created my logo for the Builders Collective is I've used a kind of red and blue hue to each of the different parts, but they come together to create a whole that you wouldn't be able to see apart from seeing the overlaps and the interconnections between everything. Mm. So it's actually taking the cyan and, and the magenta. And then as you go through the design system, you realize there's another color there. There's yellow. And wow. And as you start adding all of these different pieces together, then the colors of the spectrum, the diversity creates a visual resonance where the darkness is penetrated with the white light of all those things coming together. 
Mm-hmm. But then you have the full spectrum from the black and white contrast to the full spectrum of color available to you because you're recognizing that it isn't one thing or the other. It's actually all about how do all of those things interplay with each other to create an infinite level of creativity and possibility out of all those different options. It's all creativity. <laughs> it's, it's all life expressing itself in exactly. the myriad panoply of things and ideas and iterations and variations and possibilities. And on some level, it's all good. Exactly. You know, on some level, it's all story. It's all experience. <laughs> and, you know, on this level, we're sitting here trying to figure it all out. And part of that experience is just us going, well, yeah, this is the human experience. This mm-hmm. is what it's like to have to eat three times a day and needing warm clothes because we don't have hair on our body and all these things that we got to solve for. And I think that fosters ingenuity, that fosters a certain kind of intelligence. And so that's what we are, right? Is there anything else that you wanted to say about UX design or philosophy or anything that you did not get to say? Well, um, maybe just in the area of mentorship, what we're doing with the UX Academy program at Design Lab is creating a way of being able to learn the tools of UX design while having the support necessary from a larger design community to make sure that you're starting your design career off on the right foot in what can be a really challenging environment. The best thing that you get out of this process is actually being able to connect to the wider design community. And I think a big part of what I'm trying to do is be a complement to what Design Lab gives you, which is a great way to figure out how do you get a portfolio that helps you have some sort of calling card and proof of your ability in the industry. So important. You're also getting a chance to connect to the cohort of people who are the design generation that you're going to be working with. So you're building your community while you're building your skills. You're not necessarily learning how to do UX design for the rest of your life because that's probably not going to be realistic. It may not even be a thing. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. You're learning the basics of a design process and the importance of building relationships that are going to serve you for the rest of your career. So be sure that you're not just focusing on the artifact, but also focus on the really important thing is how do you fit in with the community and be a part of the collaborative project that we're all engaged in. Excellent. So that is UX Academy. Yeah. So you can find it at trydesignlab.com slash UX. That actually is an affiliate link that points to me. So if you end up signing up for Design Lab through that link, then I benefit. So you can support Stephen and his work, which, as we all know, is a necessary part of our current existence. Well, Stephen Bao, thank you for being on the Language of Creativity podcast. How do people find you? What is the best avenue for them to reach out to you, to engage with your work, and to get to know you a little more? So I had the privilege of being able to snap up a lot of social media accounts using the same name. I started as a young designer, started my own company as Bauhaus Visual Communications. So I've just used that name ever since. 
So yeah, Bauhaus is the name that I've used everywhere through social media, B-A-U-H-O-U-S-E. And you can find me there on Twitter, Instagram. I didn't get all of them. <laughs> Medium, but probably the best way to reach me, even through Gmail, uh, you can figure out that email account. The other way you can reach me is by connecting through the website that I've built for Builders Collective. It's builderscollective.com or bldrs.co. The other thing that you can find me at is just stephenbau.com. S-T-E-P-H-E-N-B-A-U.com. That's right. Well, Stephen Bau, it's amazing to finally have you on the show. I'm really glad that we were able to finally figure this out. And I really enjoyed the directions that you took our conversation. So thank you so much for reaching out. Special thanks to Josh Geenan and Jessica Skyfeld for help with this episode. Please subscribe and review. I'm Stephen Levitt, and this is the Language of Creativity Podcast.